Well, good morning, church. If uh, you are new to us this morning, we've been in a sermon series entitled Obey Everything. It's taken from the Great Commission. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded. So we've been looking at the commands of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. We started last February. So we've been in this sermon series for a year. There's a lot of commands of Jesus. And it's actually going to take us through April and uh, Easter service. Now today, we're going to look at the commands of Jesus in Matthew chapter 19 concerning marriage, divorce, and eunuchs. How many of you ever heard a sermon on eunuchs before? One. I'm, I'm, I'd like a review of that one. H.T. raised his hand. I was talking to H.T. yesterday at the men's breakfast. I said, hey, I'm going to be preaching on eunuchs tomorrow. He said, you mean the computer system? No, not the computer system. This is a different kind of the eunuchs in the Bible. Uh, but I'm going to make application uh, on eunuchs to singles. So we're going to be talking about marriage and singles. Now, how do you get from eunuchs to singles? Well, that's what I want to start with as part of our introductory material here. Matthew chapter 19, verse 10. Jesus' disciples then said to him, If this is the case, it's better not to marry. Not everyone can accept this statement, Jesus said. Only those whom God helps. Some people are born as eunuchs. Some people have been made eunuchs by others. And some choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let everyone accept this who can. Now, some, let's start with definitions. A eunuch is someone who's been surgically altered. 99% I mean, of the time, a man who's been surgically altered, so he cannot have sexual relations and he cannot procreate. Back in the day, you know, the, in the Oriental kingdoms, a eunuch would be in charge of the king's harem. This is who Jesus is talking about when he says, Some have been made eunuchs by others. The second category, some are born as eunuchs. And most commentators believe, and I, I agree, this is what modern medicine would refer to as intersex individuals. And they are born with sexual characteristics that do not correspond to the typical binary understandings of the male and the female body. So they're born eunuchs. Now, does this have implications for the transgender issue? It may. I'm not going to talk about that today. I don't think that's the main point. Jesus is getting at, not my message either, but I will, I do have a sermon series on the transgender issue in, later in April, I'm calling that transform, so we'll be addressing that then. And then thirdly, third category of eunuchs is those who choose to be eunuchs or make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom, that's the New American Standard. I've got the New Living Translation up here. Because again, most scholars believe, and I agree, Jesus is not talking about people there who castrate themselves. He's talking about those who choose not to marry. And that is the thrust that you get in the New Living Translation when he says, those some choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom. So those would be people who choose to remain single. And that's how we get from eunuchs to singles. And that's the application that I want to make this morning. Marrieds and divorce and singles. I think that's what's most relevant to all of us, not the other two categories. So two basic points this morning. Number one, what can marrieds teach singles about the gospel? What marriage can teach singles about the gospel? Let's revisit Matthew 19.10. Jesus' disciples then said to him, if this is the case, it's better not to marry. Now what would prompt the disciples to make a statement like that? That's a pretty dramatic statement. It's better for people not to marry. Why would they say that? They said that because of Jesus' teaching in the preceding verses about marriage and divorce. Let's get those verses before us. Verses 3 through 10. 
Some Pharisees came and tried to trap Jesus with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? Jesus replied, haven't you read the scriptures? They record that from the beginning God made them male and female, and he said this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they're no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Then why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away? They asked. Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it was not what God had originally intended. And I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. Jesus' disciples then said to him, if this is the case, it's better not to marry. So you see, this statement of theirs was prompted by Jesus' strict teaching on divorce. We could summarize it in this way. If you're married, stay married. For those who are married, stay married. Now, of course, there are exceptions to that, but they are extreme exceptions. Adultery, if we go over into 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I think you could include abandonment and perhaps physical abuse. But overall, Jesus is saying God's expectation and Jesus' expectation is for the married folks to stay married. So Jesus' disciples, upon hearing that, say, well, if that's the way you feel about it, Jesus, if that's the way God feels about it, if there's no easy divorce, no easy out, no get-out-of-jail-free card, it's better that people don't marry in the first place. Now, I don't know which of the disciples said this, whether it was married disciples or the single disciples. It, it could, you know, there were married disciples. We know Peter, for instance, was married earlier in the gospel. Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. If Peter had a mother-in-law, it means he had a what? A wife. She was sick. Jesus healed her. Why was she sick? I don't know. Maybe she was sick of her son-in-law making boneheaded statements like this. Can you imagine if this was Peter? He said, well, then it's better for people not to be married. And he's married and his wife got wind of it. Can you imagine the eye roll of Peter's wife? Peter, seriously? You're no picnic to live with, my friend, Mr. Rock. I got your rock right here. But I don't know if it was a married disciple or a single disciple or all the disciples. But one thing we do know is this. This statement by the disciples demonstrates their perspective on marriage. And their perspective on marriage was that marriage is hard. Marriage is challenging. Marriage is difficult. That's absolutely what they were saying. And Paul kind of echoes that. We got this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 28. Those who marry will face many troubles in this life. That is a general overarching statement about marriage. Now, I am not trying to dissuade anyone from getting married. We have some couples that are engaged in this church. I'm not trying to dissuade anyone from getting married. Paul was, but I'm not. I'm sure that you'll live happily ever after, and it will be fine. But I hope this is comforting to some of us this morning who may have challenges in our marriages or maybe going through a challenging season in our marriage to know it's not just you. You're not the only one who maybe had an argument with your spouse on the way to church this morning. It's not just you. It's just marriage in general can be very challenging. I want to read you a quote here from author Tim Keller in his new book, The Meaning of Marriage. Pretty good quote. It's kind of long, so you've got to work a little harder to stay with me as I read it, but I read it pretty good. 
and I think it'll be worth it. And I like the way he puts it. He writes, I have spoken to thousands of couples, some working on marriage seeking, some working on marriage sustaining, and some on marriage saving. I've heard them say over and over, love shouldn't be this hard. It should come naturally if two people are compatible and truly soulmates. The Christian answer to this is that no two people are totally compatible. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry, and if that we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This assumption, he writes, fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. The primary challenge of marriage is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. Any two people who enter into a marriage are spiritually broken by sin, which among other things means to be self-centered. Why should neurotic, selfish, immature people suddenly become angels when they fall in love? That is why a good marriage is painfully hard to achieve. Why would it be easy to live lovingly and well with another human being in light of what is profoundly wrong within our human nature? The biblical doctrine of sin explains why marriage, more than anything else that is good and important in this fallen world, is so painful and hard. Now, I've got a little bit more of Keller's quote here to read, but now we're getting to what I've been leading up to for this point, what married people have to teach single people about the gospel. So he continues, the reason that marriage is so painful and yet wonderful is because it is a reflection of the gospel, which is painful and wonderful at once. The gospel is, now this is Tim Keller's really kind of famous, if you read the literature, formulation of the gospel. The gospel is, we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared to believe. And at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. We are more sinful than we ever dared to believe, and yet we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared to hope. This is the only kind of relationship that will really transform us. The hard times of marriage drive us to experience more of the transforming love of God. But a good marriage will also be a place where we experience God's transforming love at a human level. Marriage is a parable of the gospel. End quote. Paul writes in Ephesians 5.31, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. It's a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. What can married people teach singles about the gospel? This that irreconcilable differences can be reconciled through Jesus Christ. Irreconcilable differences can be reconciled through Jesus Christ. Whether those irreconcilable differences are between Mars and Venus or between us and God, our sins that separate us from God, Jesus can reconcile. So when we're looking at a marriage, two Christians who've been married for 10 years or 20 years or 30 or 40 or 50 years, we are looking at people who learn to reconcile irreconcilable differences through the gospel, Jesus Christ. Secondly, what can single people teach married people about the gospel? 
Matthew 19, 10 and 11. Let's revisit. Jesus' disciples then said to him, if this is the case, it's better not to marry. Not everyone can accept this statement, Jesus said, only those whom God helps. So, if the disciples' statement about marriage reveals their perspective that marriage is hard, Jesus' response right here reflects his perspective that singleness is hard. Singleness is difficult. Singleness is challenging. They say, well, people ought not to marry. What Jesus said, not everyone can handle that, only the ones whom God helps. Now, some married people are thinking right now. They would never say it out loud. But they are thinking right now. Wait a minute. Singleness is hard? What's so hard about being single? I remember being single. I remember the freedom of being single. I mean, I could go where I wanted to go. I could do what I wanted to do. I could wear, I could eat what I wanted to eat. I could stay up as late as I want. I could sleep as late as I want. I didn't have to answer to anybody. Total freedom. What's so hard about being single? Well, for one thing, now, we marriage may be exercising a somewhat selective memory about that. But the challenges of singleness, there's a couple of things. There's the whole loneliness thing. God created Adam, looked at the first man, and he said, it's not good that the man should be a what? Alone. That's not good. There's the loneliness. And there's the celibacy thing. So we know, as far as Christians are concerned, most of us are Christians here this morning, that sexual relationships are to take place only, as far as the Bible is concerned, only within the environment of a monogamous heterosexual marriage. So there's single people are called to celibacy. And yet, Jesus says some choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom. Why would anybody choose to remain single if they had the option to get married? Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 32. And he's in that chapter 7. He's talking about marriage. And he's talking about staying single. And he's urging people to stay single there. But he writes, an unmarried man, here's the thing, an unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking about how to please him. But a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided in the same way. A woman who is no longer married or has never been married can be devoted to the Lord and holy in body and spirit, but a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her man. Right? For instance, we have the men's retreat coming up next weekend at Lake Aurora. It's Friday night and Saturday. Go away, hear preaching, have praying, fellowship, men's retreat. Let's say that I'm recruiting people to go to the men's retreat. I'm, I'm making a list. I want to know who's going. I'm going around to the men, and I, and I go to a single man. Say I go to Daniel Broadbent back there in the tech booth. Daniel's single. I say, Daniel, uh, I'm recruiting people for the men's retreat. It's this coming weekend. Are you going to go yes or no? Daniel can tell me right then, right there, yes or no. Now, let's say I go to a married man. I go over here to Dave Osgood. I say, Dave, recruiting people, going to the men's retreat. Look, it's next weekend, Friday night, Saturday. Are you going to go yes or no? 
Dave is going to say, hey, Steve, I'd love to go, but let me get back to you. Let me think about that. Let me pray about that a little bit. I'm going to check my calendar, and then I'll get back to you and let you know. Now, is Dave going to think about it, pray about it, or check his calendar? No. What is he going to do? He's going to ask Susie. He's going to ask Susie, can I go to the men's retreat next weekend? Oh, yes, yes. And it's not just Dave, Dave, not just Dave. We all, we all know how this works. We married. And in a month or two, it's going to be the women's retreat. The women's retreat is going to be the same thing, especially for the women who have little children at home. Well, let me get back to you because my husband's not going to want to keep the kids. And I've got to ask him. I've got to check with him. Okay, so Paul is saying, so this is the thing about single people. They don't have spouses. They don't have dependents. They don't have kids. They don't have to worry about this, that, or the other thing. They can go to the men's retreat. They can go to the work day. They can go on the mission field. Can you imagine Paul? Paul is writing this. And you know, if you know about the background of Paul and his missionary journeys and the things that he suffered and persecutions, trying to do that as a married man or a, man, a married man with children. So th- this is the advantage. Now, let me read to you another quote. Got lots of quotes today. This one from Preston Sprinkle in his book, uh, People to be Loved, about singles. The church doesn't know what to do with singles. Many Christians view singleness as an interim stage, a period of life you have to get through, like standing in line for a ride at Disney World. No one wants to be there, but we grin and bear it so we can jump on a rocket and swirl around the Matterhorn. Singleness is rarely viewed in a positive light in American Christianity. Much of this anti-singleness message is communicated by our churches, sometimes with words, other times with actions. Sometimes the message is conscious. Usually it's subtle and unintended. But single people hear it loudly and clearly. Quote, you're incomplete until you get married and have at least two kids. Now, if you have like four or more, then you're weird again. But statistically, single people are much less likely to attend church, get involved in a small group, volunteer at church events compared to married people. But singleness should never be seen as a stage to get through, but a unique gift intended to be used for God's glory. 25% of our congregation right here, Vera Christian Church, are single. I want to circle around to the celibacy thing for the last few minutes here. 1 Corinthians 7, again, Paul believes that Paul, some believe that Paul alluded to a gift of celibacy. 1 Corinthians 7, 7, when he writes, I wish that all were as myself, but each man has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Barry Danilik did his PhD on Paul's singleness in Cambridge University, and he writes this about that. Paul does not imply that those with the gift of singleness are asexual individuals with no interest in marriage or family life. But he is suggesting that they experience a genuine freedom that allows them to serve God with a whole heart, irrespective of whether they ever experience the fulfillment of marital intimacy and family life. Some people seem to think that you're either called to singleness or you're called to marriage. If you believe you're called to marriage, then you're not fulfilling your call until you get married. But really, the Bible does not speak of calling in that way. The Bible says we're called to salvation. And then we're called to live a holy life in whatever state we're in. If we're single, then we're called to live out our salvation in a way that glorifies God in our singleness. And if we're married, then we're called to live out our marriage state in a way that glorifies God and is holy unto them. I want to read to you four quotes from men who have chosen to remain single for the sake of the kingdom. They're not priests, but uh, here's what they write, and especially in as it relates to celibacy. 
Dan Matson writes, my life is not a life of misery. I'm not doomed to celibacy or a life of heartbreaking loneliness. I reject the representation of a life striving for celibacy as miserable. Part of my mission in life is to debunk the dreary, droopy tropes out there of what celibacy is all about. Ron Belgal, is celibacy difficult? Yes, so is marriage, so is grad school. Life is pain. Is it frustrating at times? Yes, but watch someone raising toddlers and it may change your perspective on the challenges of celibacy. Although discipleship is costly, it need not be lonely. Our culture is very fixated on sex, but sex and romance are not the same as love, nor is Christian love the same as the kind of casual friendship that is common in our culture. Andrew Thomas, single Christians may be called to live without sex, but no one can survive without healthy friendships and emotional intimacy. That's where the church comes in. And finally, Tim Otto. He says, I had felt that social solidarity and family were impossible for me. Yet with my brothers and sisters in the church, I felt like I was suddenly coming to the surface and encountering light after years of living in an underground cave. I was living in a New Testament family in which I was loved and in which others needed my love. All four of those statements were made by gay Christian men, men who are same-sex attracted, but they're Christians and who believe that in order for them to live out their lives in faithfulness to Christ, that God was calling them to remain single and celibate. And I believe they're right. But that is not just God's expectation and call on those who are same-sex attracted. It is God's expectation and call for all singles, whether they've never been married or are divorced or are widowed. What can single Christians teach married Christians about the gospel? This, that Jesus Christ and his church are enough to meet all of our needs. Jesus never promised us all the earthly blessings we desire if we follow him. But he did promise that every spark of loneliness, every tinge of pain, every dull ache of depression, every chill of isolation will be redeemed when Jesus returns and restores his creation and reward the righteous with eternal life. And only then will we be on the side of the angels who neither marry nor given or are given in marriage. That is a state of the resurrection foretasted in this life by our celibate brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I thank you and ask your blessing upon every marriage in our congregation today. May you empower us with the grace to love one another and to stay married. And I thank you, God, for each single person who is in this congregation as well. May they also be empowered by your love and by your grace and also by our church family. Come alongside and provide the support, the friendship that all of us need to thrive. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.